As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome to the Rocket Ship Podcast. I'm Matt Goldman. I'm Joelle Steiniger. And I'm Michael Saka. Today, we had Dr. Sean Weiss, who actually hosts a TV show on the Oprah Network called The Naked Entrepreneur. Um, he recently wrote a book with Brad Feld, Startup Opportunities, Know When to Quit Your Day Job, and was formerly a, a investor on Dragon's Den, the Canadian version of Shark Tank. Guys, what did you think? This was really great. Um, what he talks about in the book and, and what we talked about mainly in the interview is kind of evaluating your idea before you would even get to like the lean startup phase and starting to talk to customers. Um, he says he gets people constantly asking him, you know, is this a good idea? And he talks about all the blind spots that people have and things that they're missing, um, including understanding the difference between 
uh, a company that could have exponential growth versus incremental growth and what that means in terms of getting investment. And on the investment side, he went on to talk about you know, different types of investment and the kinds of uh, traction that you need to justify that investment and how that varies depending on if you're at the back of the napkin phase or, or if you have a prototype or any other phase. So great interview. Let's get into it. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Hover makes purchasing and managing your domain simple and easy. This week, I talked to George Diab of Working On about why he uses Hover. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I've been using it for a long time. Probably 2012, I think. I love it. It's yeah. The prices are great. The interface is awesome. And um, I still have a few uh, domains out in, in some other places. And it, it's, I'm just waiting to find some time and I'll move them all to Hover. I love right. it. Yeah. Go to Hover.com and use the code SATISFIEDCUSTOMERS to get 10% off your domain purchase today. CodeShip is a hosted continuous delivery service focusing on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up continuous integration in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports both your GitHub and Bitbucket projects, and you can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. Should you decide to go with a premium plan, you can save 20% off of any plan for the next three months by using code ROCKETSHIP. Go to codeship.com slash rocketship and check it out. You recently wrote uh, Startup Opportunities, Know When to Quit Your Day Job with Brad Feld. Um, kind of tell us the why did you guys feel like this was the book to write right now? So Brad and I met a number of years back. Uh, I host the show on the Oprah Winfrey Network called The Naked Entrepreneur, and he was a guest. And the more we talked on air and off air, the more it seemed like we did very similar things uh, around seed investments, around mentorship, around growing small and medium-sized companies into world-changing companies. And so we knew we wanted to do something. And then we sat down and discussed you know, what our own problems were. And one of the problems that Brad and I have is that two or three times a week, someone comes to us and says, hey, is my idea any good? Should I quit my job? Should I sell my children to science so I have enough money to register my trademark? You know, and it's hard because in 15 minutes, you can probably get a couple of red flags or an indicator, but these things are, are being dealt with, you know, for years by some of these people. Right, right. And so we really wrote the book because friends don't let friends start stupid startups. You know, okay. Brad and I have both been founders. Brad and I have both been investors for, you know, a decade, decade and a half. And it's hard. Being an entrepreneur is really, really hard. So don't make it that much harder by starting with a stupid idea. You know, we want to be the world's biggest bookstore. Might have made sense in 1996, but not in 2016. Right. What are some of those kind of general red flags that you see pop up over and over again that maybe are blind spots for, for people just starting out? Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion, and it's really not helped by our governments um, okay. around what a startup is and what a small business is. So they're both run by entrepreneurs. They're both new creations. But uh, a startup, as a professor of mine, Steve Blank, likes to say, is a temporary organization that is searching for a repeatable, scalable business model, whereas a small and medium-sized enterprise is the restaurant on the corner, mm. the dry cleaner. Listen, in Canada and in the United States, you know, 99 out of 100 companies that get registered when you eliminate the holding companies, you know, are small businesses. And that is the backbone of our economy. And I think that's very true. But it's not sexy. The sexy is the 1% that leads to Snapchat, that leads to uh, WhatsApp, that leads to Facebook. That's what people want to write movies about and get into and do TV shows about. 
And so there's a big difference. And so one of the biggest red flags that Brad and I see is you can't pitch an investor on a small or medium-sized enterprise. No investor can get the returns that we need by starting a dry cleaner. And so right off the bat, unfortunately, that eliminates a lot of people who watch Shark Tank or Dragon's Den in Canada, you know, who dream of this thing. But what they're dreaming of is a restaurant, which is great. It's, it's the majority of businesses, but it doesn't have the sort of potential returns that are necessary for investment. So not being an investable company is a red flag. Another big red flag is not getting your timing right. So by the time venture capitalists are ready to sort of invest in you three to five million dollars, you're already past the prototype stage. When Brad and I started investing in the dot-com boom, you know, it took five million dollars to go to market. And then in the web 2.0 round, you know, 25, 2005, 2006, you know, it took 500,000. Well, around 2010, 2011, it dropped again. And now it takes, you know, 50,000, 25,000 to sort of test your product. And what do I mean by that is to build the minimum viable product, to get customer feedback, to begin to sell it. Venture capitalists want to fuel your future growth. That's what they want to add money in. They want to give you money to buy Google AdWords that you already know how much they cost and how much money they generate. So three red herrings, you know, three free red flags, not being an investable business, asking for millions when really what you need is thousands. And then the last part that I find most alarming is they come to us for a blessing as if... Brad or I could sit there and say, yes, it's a good idea and it will be successful. Right, instantly, you know, right. <laughs> in the 21st century, it's really not about getting blessings from VCs as some modicum milestone. It's more about interacting with your customers and proving a market exists. Our job as investors has gotten much easier. I can just ask, you know, how much does it cost you to acquire a company? To acquire a customer? How money do you make from a customer? And if you don't know how to answer that or haven't done the work that's necessary, then you're not ready for venture capital, which is fine because there's accelerators like Techstars and Y Combinator. There's angel groups around the country. There's lots of options. But those options will not work if you're not a, a, a sort of VC startup and you haven't done the work. So are you guys looking at seed stage companies um, or are you looking at kind of companies that are looking to raise that first million after they've already raised an initial seed or angel round? So we don't differentiate. We start the process as this is the book you should read before you read The Lean Startup. If you're going to be a startup, okay. if you're going to be a digital or internet or clean tech or some world-changing, exponentially better solution, this book helps you to know what kind of questions you should have answered before you quit your job. So whether or not you're going to get a Series A round in millions or a seed round, Brad is a partner at Foundry Group, which is a Series A VC. So they're doing in the millions. I'm a partner at Ryerson Futures, which is a seed investor. We run an accelerator where our investments tend to be about $50,000. Our investments tend to be much earlier than Brad's. He's more Series A. Mm -hmm. But then he's also a founder of Techstars, which is very seed. So that's our space. Sort of first investors in, first professional investors in. Usually the companies for Brad have some revenue and are looking to grow. And for me, they're just a dream and a minimum viable product. But the book covers all. Okay. (laughs) 
So what are those questions that you're saying people have to definitely have figured out before they come and talk to you? Well, I think people have to figure some of these questions out for themselves before they quit their job or sell their kids or donate their blood or sperm or whatever they need to get capital. Um, you know, questions around, do you have an exponential, not incremental advantage? We talk about in the book, the need for 10x. And the 10x rule simply states that in order to displace incumbents, these market leaders, these 800-pound gorillas, one has to be a lot better than the alternatives that are currently available, not a little better. It's easier to see with an example. Netflix has been so widely adopted and so quickly become a market leader, an 800-pound gorilla, because... It's 10 times faster to watch a movie on Netflix than to go to the video store. There's 10 times more selection. There's, there's one-tenth the late fees. There's 10 times more value. And most of all, you don't have to wear pants. If I want to go get a video from Blockbuster or a video store, i got to wear pants. But if it's 3 a.m. in the morning, I don't got to wear no pants to watch Netflix. You know, you look at email. But less than two decades after email launches, uh, you know, millions, if not billions, of email accounts were created, and the post office was never the same. And why? Because email is ten times faster, maybe a hundred times faster, even a thousand times faster than snail mail. That fat postal worker who would schlep your mail from New York City to San Francisco would take two weeks. Now, if you want to dump your girlfriend over mail, you just send it, and it's two seconds later. So. Exponential. How will you have an exponential solution compared to what's there? Because if you're not, you're not going to be able to overcome sunk costs, overcome switching costs. You're not going to be able to attract a big enough market fast enough. The next question uh, we always think is, is how can this be a sustainable business? Who are you selling to? Why are you selling it to them? What is the social contract? You know, I put up my pictures of cats on YouTube or on Facebook, and they allow me to share those pictures faster or easier or 10 times better than elsewhere. But in return, they sell views versus advertising. So the whole idea of the lean startup of building an MVP and taking it to market to test for the solution problem fit or the market problem fit, you know, we're much earlier than that. These are the questions you ask yourself before going all in. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. So when people come to you, say you get people every day every you know, day. is that is this a good idea should i do this and you know a lot of them may be looking for a blessing but do you think a lot of it is that uh people just really don't understand either the difference between this exponential versus incremental growth um or are people just too optimistic that their idea is exponential when um looking in from the outside you can see actually this is just a nice small business idea oh that's a great question um I think it's a double-edged sword. You know, I worked five seasons on Dragon's Den, which is called Shark Tank in America. And that show has done a lot, but, you know, it's still TV. And so people now are thinking about entrepreneurship. People are thinking about going out on their own. But they're sort of basing it on, well, it worked on Dragon's Den or it worked on Shark Tank, so it'll work for me. You know, I don't take HR guidance from Donald Trump on The Apprentice, and I might not 
take you know venture capital advice from Robert Herjavec on Shark Tank. Now I would, I like him, <laughs> and, and and I'm not specifically picking on him. But if you only know a little, then you only know a little enough to get trouble. What kills me is people who take their small and medium-sized enterprise and instead of starting it, instead of getting started, it they want us to invest in it. And we can't because it doesn't make the returns that we need. And you haven't done anything. You know, it's not – when we started, Brad and I, in the 90s, I worked in New York in the dot-com boom. And people would have these back-of-the-napkin diagrams, and that was enough because it took years and millions to build a product. But now it takes Startup Weekend 72 hours to build a minimum viable product. And if you can't show me a little bit of traction as a result – you know, you're not going to get any funding. So I think people confuse themselves, number one. They don't really think through uh, who they're pitching to, whether it's a good fit. And you can see that all the time. You know, we do a lot of software and internet and mobile, and yet people come and pitch us nutraceutical foods or clean tech solar panels. Listen, I think those are great inventions, but I don't know shit about them. <laughs> that isn't my area of expertise. So, like, you're just taking a meeting because you think any meeting you'll be able to convince me. But as we say in the book, you know, you're not an exception. It doesn't matter how much I like you, right? I can't invest in a company in Japan. It doesn't matter how much I like those founders. It's just not feasible with my fund structure. And so half of it, I think, is that people don't do enough research up front. And the other half of it is entrepreneurs, in order to push their idea forward, have to willfully blind themselves to how difficult it will be. You know, in the book, we talk about uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale and the Stockdale Principle. And the Stockdale Principle basically says is you have to uh, have enough hope, enough confidence to tackle insurmountable odds, but you can't lose sight of the grounded reality of how difficult it will be. You know, you can't just say, I'm going to beat Microsoft. You have to really understand what that means. And so good entrepreneurs fall in that mix. They believe in their product, but they're not willfully blind to the difficulties ahead. Well, I think entrepreneurs as a whole are kind of, myself included, um, hopelessly optimistic. They have to be. At three in the morning when you're debugging your code and everyone else is sleeping, you know, what else is driving you? That's part of the DNA and that's why we love it. I mean, Brad and I were both entrepreneurs before we were investors. So for us, we know it firsthand. We know what it's like to be up all night with product and we know what it's like to worry about making payroll. And, and I think that's why I always say entrepreneurship is sort of the, the second hardest or the third hardest job in the world. So do you find that a lot of the companies that are approaching tech stars and these accelerators are doing it too early? No, I don't think they are. I think that tech stars and our accelerator and a number of accelerators do a great job of telling people what they're looking for. Yes, maybe 10 or 15% can be cut out of the mix because they're not appropriate. Like we want to open a zoo. Um, But in general, these are meant to be those initial stages. You know, when you're still looking for problem-solution fit, when your product is still a prototype, when you've just started talking to customers. I think that's a great time for seed investment. I think that's a ridiculous time to be raising millions of dollars. Mm. What When we're looking at kind of, you know, you mentioned getting traction. And and what does that look like? Is that a couple key customers and, and maybe, you know, some some promising partners? Or is that like, you know, are we approaching a hockey stick growth where we figured out at least something that works in the meantime? Oh, that's another good question. So answering in reverse, the hockey stick growth is necessary for venture capital. Okay. So they're building 
uh, fuel for your fire. They want to know how you're going to use it, what you're going to use it, who are the customers. So by that point, you already need, if you're a B2C company, 100,000 users. If you're a B2B company, 100, 200 users. Um, what we're talking about, what we're talking about at um, at this level and traction is a little bit different. So in the 90s, in the dot-com boom, we used to say that proof of concept was you turn on a light switch and the light goes on. So you prove the technology works. And now we say if you, if you want proof of concept, turn on the light switch, see the light goes on, and then see those people who are willing to pay you to read under that light. And so for us, proof of concept traction is a, is a very subjective thing. For a B2C company, we want to see the initial app. We want to see the sort of working prototype. We want to see a few hundred users maybe so that we know that what you've built actually works. Uh, for B2B, usually uh, one or two or three customers, one or two partners, anything that helps us get past this entrepreneurial embellishment. You know, I worked for years on, on Dragon's Den, which is Shark Tank down there, and there was never – any company of the 20,000 companies I met, not one of them said, uh, we suck. They mm. all thought they were the next Google. And so as an investor who hears lots of pitches, I have to eliminate you as a reliable source of information. And so I have a list. If you tell me you have thousands of dollars in sales, that's really good traction. That's enough for me to know that you built something that solves someone's problem. If you tell me you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of sales, then I've already know that you have a scalability, there's a way to work this, you're figuring it out. If you don't have sales because you're still building it, you only have a paper prototype, then traction goes down from there. So partnerships are very important, uh, working with customers, working with potential buyers, with vendors. You know, If Bill Gates called me up and said, hey, I, uh, I'm using a new operating system, but they need a little money, would you invest? Well, that sort of halo effect would probably have a positive impact. So traction isn't like if you have $15 in sales, you have traction. Traction is much more a process by which you're showing the data is moving along the curve properly. There's a great quote in the book and a great essay called Investors Invest in Lines, Not Dots. You know, dots are informational points mm -hmm. and they tell you how many users you have. But lines show you which way the growth is occurring. When we're looking at some of the other, I mean, you're looking at like the team, you're looking at the product, their traction. And then mm -hmm. one of the questions that I get constantly asked is about the market. And and how do how do entrepreneurs properly identify how big the market is, and what's the best way to communicate that to an investor? Well, I say they should read the book. Okay, but <laughs> just giving them a little bit of heads up. So I have very strong beliefs on this. So I believe that to really assess the market, you don't have to be right. You mm -hmm. just have to be reasonable. And you're looking for an entrepreneur who has taken reasonable steps to show the market is big. For instance. You can do it top-down. How many people in the world are left-handed? How many other people in the world are close enough to my left-hand Emporium store that could buy? Right? That's your general population, your general sample. Okay. How many can I reach? What percentage? That's your total addressable market. Then I go bottom-up. I say I have a store. Every day, 100 people walk into the store. I have two salespeople. They can sell X in a day. And I try to figure out what... Bottom up, how many salespeople would we need to make how much revenue? Somewhere in between those lines cross. 
And that's what I think is the market. So we like large and growing markets. What does that mean? It means we're more likely to invest in an artificial intelligence play that makes sales software better than we are in a blacksmith who's found a magical way to make horseshoes for unicorns. <laughs> you know, the blacksmith market is not growing you know, year over year, 25% or more. Mm. And we want to be in markets that have that sort of growth. So you don't need to do a mathematical calculation. You can figure that out. The growth of smartphones is that big. So apps and and software for smartphones. Uh, Cameras have now, you know, grown that big. Chips have grown that big. Now you've got drones coming along that that, that are growing at that pace. But, you know, new ways to turn coal into energy, not really growing that fast. Mm-hmm. And so when you're looking for large and growing markets, you're looking for those markets that are growing sort of 25% or more year after a year. Interesting. Okay. And I'm curious because, I mean, there's the B to, to B, which is, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's revenue, it's customer acquisition. And then there's the B to C, which um, seems to be a little bit more um, loose with, with some of the valuations. Where do you think that they're, they're – coming up with the values when there's no revenue generated, but yet maybe they have millions of users. Well, I'm a Canadian, so I should probably start with an apology. (laughs) You know, I'm sorry, but I can't speak for other people's billion-dollar valuations. Okay. (laughs) I just can't. But what they're trying to figure out is a concept known as lifetime value. It's easy to see the other way around. Let's say you're AT&T and you have a mobile subscriber. So you sell them a phone every three years and then you sell them minutes and data. You can divide your revenues by the number of users and sort of know per year what a user is worth. Mm -hmm. Then you can multiply that by the average time it takes to switch. Maybe three years, maybe four years. So that allows you to tell you that an AT&T customer, when you multiply the number of months they're going to be your customer by the number of revenue dollars you get from them, you can have an estimate that an AT&T customer is probably worth more than $300 and less than $1,000 over a three-year period. So by doing that, you can sort of estimate what each customer is worth. And that's how some of these crazy valuations come about, right? So people say that Facebook uh, users are worth $45 a user. So what do I do? I take $45 a user and times it by 2 billion users. And what does that give me? Well, it gives you Facebook's you know, ridiculously high valuation. Right, right. And that's what they're all working backwards from. Okay. So if you're Snapchat and you have 25 million users and those users are in a great demographic of 16 to 24 years of age and they spend three hours a day on it and you have a model, now you don't even know how you're going to make money off of them. Right. But you know you have their attention. Like Twitter, you know that there's a model out there. And so it's really about experimenting to figure out how to monetize whoever's getting the most value. I mean, we're not Facebook's uh, customers. We're Facebook's assets. Yeah, we're the, the product. Customers, right? Yeah, we're their product. And, and I think that is lost on a lot of people. How do you see any like? Because usually the answer is advertising in that scenario. Do you see any emerging trends that would suggest we were going a different route for those? So kind I don't of B2C? like advertising as a model. I think advertising as a model only works when you're getting into the hundreds of millions of customers. Right. Right. I think if your product generates revenue. It should do it from the end user. But this is a personal bias. It doesn't mean I know any better than anyone else. I just like that if you sell someone something that he re or she really benefits from, then they're willing to give you a dollar. So I love the freemium model. You know, I play the first three levels of Angry Birds uh, for free. If I want to play more, I got to pay. 
I'm getting the value, I'm paying it. I think that's a much better model than I get to play for free, but someone puts ads up. So when I play Angry Birds, I got to see the ads. Mm. That's me. Or your data is sold on the back end. Or my data is sold on the back end. I really believe in the fundamentals, and this is why I said, I'm sorry, I'm Canadian, of social contracting. You know, you go into a pizza parlor, it's an easy social transaction. They take an out-of-work university student, combine them with yeast and some ingredients and some pepperoni, and they sell you the product for a price. That price must be more than the ingredients and the unemployed university students cost. Full stop. Mm -hmm. Why does that change when the pizza becomes a game and the person never meets the person who makes it? You know, there's a social value of what you have. Things have an intrinsic value. If Twitter helps me get my messages out and make me money, then maybe I should be paying Twitter a quarter a message or maybe I should be paying Twitter a dollar a month. But the advertising model, I think, works really good when you have network effects and large million-plus customers. But to get there, you've got to spend so much money that as a seed investor, it scares me. I much prefer to grow out of revenue than I do out of investment. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so kind of going back to the title of your book, mm-hmm. um, when when should an entrepreneur quit their job? Do you expect them to quit before they come and pitch you? Well, we would never write a check for someone who's not full-time at the business. Okay. So that's full stop. But that could be the day after the investment. But typically... You want someone, you want multiple people working four to six months on the idea full-time before they seek investment. Okay. You want to know they have what is inappropriately and politically incorrectly called skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Think about the rabbi in the moil, <laughs> right? What do you lose if this goes poorly? Don't come ask me for my hundred grand until you put up your 10 grand. And sometimes that's time. Sometimes that's leaving a job that pays really well. But the book is really talking about how easy it is to dream about opportunities and a series of self-reflective questions that you should explore before you tell your boss to shove it. Right. (laughs) Which I think is incredibly valuable, probably more so than the lean canvas starting off. Well, I love lean canvas. I mean, I like Eric Reese and I love what, what Ash Majuri did and what Stevie Blank did. I think those are all fabulous, but our book is before those books. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's 5 million new businesses going to be started next year, but if you think about that, if VC meetings or Invangel meetings only sort of invest in one in a hundred or one in a thousand, and there's five million being started, then is there 50 million that don't get off the ground? And if so, what are those 45 million people not understanding? Mm-hmm. And so the book isn't just about pooping on people's bad ideas. It's about helping them understand how to make the idea a great opportunity. And that's a big difference. You know, an idea is worthless. It has value only when it becomes crystallized and executed. That's why you can't get a patent on an idea. You have to actually have it do something first. And as a result, I I think that it's a very powerful time to be an entrepreneur because these costs to launch a startup business, at least a digital one, have dropped from 5 million to 500,000 to 50,000. I have students who graduate our course who start their digital business with $5,000 and six, nine months later are taking venture capital rounds. So it's really easy to do it, but that creates a lot of noise and little little, uh, signal. Think about Amazon. You can now self-publish your book. Now, you guys are the exception because I would probably want to read your book. 
But the majority of people write a book for their own interest. That doesn't really mean there's a market for it. And so just because there's a million books on Amazon doesn't mean all of them are getting read. Right. And it's sort of the same idea when it comes to the startups. If there's 5 million getting funded or 5 million getting started, then there's a lot more not getting started or failing early. And I'd rather people have less pain or the pain that they have focus on stuff that leads to growth, revenue, users, as opposed to hogging the time of people who will never invest in you. Right. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this with us. We're well, it's doing- my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> you know, ever since I was a PhD, I've always learned that uh, anyone who wants to listen is a blessing. So I'm really pleased uh, that you guys were able to give me this time and, and to have a chat about it. And I hope I answered anything that you asked. Yeah, no, absolutely. Where do we, I mean, we will link to the book on Amazon. Where do we keep up with you online? And I guess on, on uh, Oprah's network on TV. Absolutely. Yeah. We're on the, uh, on the Oprah Winfrey network at 6.30 on Sundays and 10 o'clock on Tuesdays. But the truth is, in this crazy world, just go to iTunes. Okay. <laughs> just go to iTunes. Google The Naked Entrepreneur. You can find us on a website called thenakedentrepreneur.tv. But I'll just tell you straight up, there is no nudity. No one's really naked. It's just naked in the conversations. And we've been very blessed to have really famous, famous, famous people come on and tell us things that, that, that I was very surprised. Uh, Brad can be found at feld.com. He's got a great blog there, and he's done a lot of work to help people know. Uh, Google Techstars, if you want to find out about accelerators, if you're interested in our fund, it's called Ryerson Futures. But really, thanks to Wikipedia, you just put my name in, and eventually you'll find us. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rocketship Podcast. If you enjoyed it, we have tons of other awesome episodes on our website. Check them out, rocketship.fm. And be sure to check out our app discount section where we have discounts on products that we use every day, like Woo Themes, Wistia, Treehouse. Go to rocketship.fm forward slash essentials and get your discounts today.